My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb, you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust 
will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Thank you, Simon. Heavenly Father, as we consider these words now, these words that have come from your throne room, open our hearts to hear your voice and your voice alone. Amen. Now, before we get into this psalm properly, I just wanted to pick out a couple of, couple of verses. Would you like my water, darling? I, I, I can't complain. I did give him the cold. So I just wanted to pick out a couple of verses um, for those of you that, you know, that, that like the King James. Uh, verse 3 of this psalm is where we get that lovely phrasing about God inhabiting the praises of Israel. And that's just a wonderful uh, word, the way of talking about God inhabiting the praises of Israel, how God presence is in the praise of his people. But in verse 21 in the King James, we also get, save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. And um, I thought, you know, to help illustrate how important linguistic choices are, I don't feel very scared of, you know, unicorns today look like this. This is a lovely pink unicorn with plaited plastic hair and on, it's got you know, flowers and hearts on its rump. I don't think that that is terribly scary. Um, so it just illustrates, I'll leave that there and the, and the children when they come up later you can tell them about where this comes from. Uh, but the King James does talk in that verse about being saved from the horns of the unicorns. But as we consider that, and we consider that psalm, uh, it's important to realize that there are some linguistic choices that have to be made when we are translating from ancient Hebrew uh, to English, and I will come back to that in a particular verse later. As you will know, if you are here regularly, we are going through various psalms, but rather than look at them in order, we are looking at particular themes within the psalms. And today we are looking at the psalms as prophecy. As I said, deliberately chosen because we are now in the season of Lent where we look forward uh, to Easter uh, and the events of Christ's death and resurrection. We have already read in Luke how Jesus specifically specifically highlights the Psalms as prophecy and that he will be fulfilling what the Psalms say about him. And this theme of prophecy runs through many of the Psalms. And as you become more familiar with the Psalms and more familiar with the New Testament, you will see the overlap frequently. It's a bit like when you buy a yellow car and you think you've got the only yellow car on the road until you start driving it and you realize that half the country seems to be driving a yellow car. As you go through the New Testament, if you're familiar with the Psalms, you will be probably astonished. It's along with Isaiah. uh, Psalms and Isaiah are the two sections of the Old Testament that are most frequently either directly quoted 
or there are allusions that are taken from those books in the New Testament. There are particular prophetic or messianic themes that we can pick up from the Psalms. In Psalm 2 and 89, we have the language of the anointed king. Those Psalms also have the language of sonship, of God, of the anointed son. Hebrews 1 directly quotes Psalm 45 and makes it clear that the language in Psalm 45 talking about God is the same language that Jesus is God, that the Son is God. We have the language of servant in Psalm 69, 118, and 110. And to sum it up, in case we were in any doubt, in Acts 2, verses 29 and 30, having quoted Psalms 16 and 110, Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, specifically calls David a prophet. And he outlines the messianic vision that David gives us in the Psalms. And then we turn to Psalm 22, a psalm that speaks of both suffering and of the glory to come, which is why we've had the whole psalm read to us. Usually when we are looking at prophecy in the Old Testament, it is a bit like walking in hills. If, if, uh, Ali and Fish will know this very well, but I know a lot of you enjoy walking, and you, you, you're walking up a hill, you know, particularly quite a steep, big one, and you think, I'll just get to the top, and I'll enjoy the view. I can sit down and have my sandwiches and open my flask. And what you think was the top, you get there, and you realize there's a little bit further on before you really get to the top. And then you get to that bit, and there's another bit further on as well. And when you're looking at the Old Testament prophets, you think you've got to the top, and you understood it. You've understood the context. You've understood what it meant to the first readers. And then you realize, actually, there's a little bit more to understand, because it meant when it was then quoted in the New Testament, it, you know, it, it brings another layer of meaning. And then there's another layer of meaning when we understand what it means for us today. So as we go through this, it's very difficult to kind of realize that there are different layers of meaning. Uh, and the problem is, one of the layers of meaning is what it meant to the person writing it. Because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. But the problem is, we don't know a huge amount about the context in which David was writing this. And we are so deeply embedded in understanding this as the events of Good Friday and of the future that it is kind of, kind of difficult to kind of separate those for a little bit and, and then bring them together. Isaiah 53 is another very obviously talking about the Messiah, but more difficult to place in its original context. For most of David's Psalms, we can do that but it's a little bit more difficult here. But what we do know from the wording and the phraseology is that this is a psalm of a deep-lived experience. There is deep suffering, and there's this heartfelt expression of complete isolation and humiliation. This was written hundreds of years before Christ, and whether it was David's deep, experience himself or purely prophetic. This was rarely, and there's no real evidence to show that it was seen as prophetic, seen as pointing to the Messiah until after Jesus' death. And I think we can understand why. We cannot avoid the deep 
suffering that is expressed here. But the Messiah was not meant to suffer. He was meant to be triumphant. So I think we can understand how this was not really seen in that vein until after Jesus. The basic structure is in two halves. The first half, the verses 1 to 21, speak of the suffering and the scorn and of enemy attack. Verses 1 starts with that cry that Jesus said in Matthew 27 on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in our NIV that we've read today, it's described as a groan, but um, the, uh, the translation is more strictly speaking, the cry of a roar of a lion. It's not a whimper. This is a cry of deep, deep distress. But after this desperate, anguished start, David almost immediately says, yet. Yet. You are enthroned as the Holy One. There is a sense of absolute isolation from God, but David recalls the past deliverance of God. He recalls that God is enthroned on high. He is sovereign. So despite screaming, roaring as a lion about God's absence, he expresses trust. That sense of isolation and God seeming absence and his trust in God do not appear to be mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. Verse 6 goes on to describe mocking and isolation. I am a worm, I am despised, I am mocked. And the psalmist says they hurl insults. He trusts in the Lord. He's previously just expressed that trust. Let the Lord rescue him. And we know that this is also the experience that Jesus endured on the cross. On the cross. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. And then verse 9, again, another yet. Trust is dragged back into the writer's conscience, recalling the faithfulness of God from the past. And the continued pleas, please God, do not be far from me. Now, it carries on to talk about the bulls of Bashan, and this is another sense of isolation and abject fear. Bashan bulls were known to be goring. Bashan was a fertile place. Uh, the cattle grew strong, and that had a problem with goring bulls. So this is a real threat, a real menace. Uh, and in verse 13, the fear of roaring lions. And this is probably a reference to where oathbreakers were put in cages into a public square, and then a, a lion was put into the cage I'm glad the children are not here. I wouldn't be saying this if the children were in. Um, but into a cage to devour the oath breaker so that that could be a nice public execution. There is deep, horrific violence in these words. That there's that sort of ongoing menace and pressure. And in the face of that, the psalmist says, there is nobody who helps. Instead, they mock. They stare and gloat. And lots are cast for the victim's clothing. 
again foretelling the events of Good Friday. Again, we hear, deliver me, rescue me, in verse 19. But through all that suffering and the complaint about God's absence and the cry of desperation that there is no one to help, at no point does the psalmist ask for vengeance on his enemies. This happens in so many other psalms. It, you know, psalms are pretty graphic, you know, uh, in terms of crying, you know, calling out on God to defeat enemies, to have, take vengeance on them, for them to suffer. But we don't see that here. And on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive, for they do not know what they do. And at this point, in verse 21, the one that talks about the unicorns, this whole psalm hinges. Because even as David is at the peak of his terror, calling for rescue from the mouth of lions, he says to God, and the, the unicorns have become oxen, by the way, uh, from the mouth of oxen you rescued me, or you have heard me. Now, I know the NIV doesn't actually say this, but it should. And it does in the footnote, and most other translations do. This isn't another cry, rescue me from the mouth of oxen. This is a, you have heard me. There is a sudden change from a cry for rescue to say that God has rescued, God has answered, God has heard. And then we enter the second half of this psalm where the sufferer who has been surrounded by enemies and terror becomes surrounded by the congregation of people worshipping God. The fear and the cries of pain melt away and are replaced by praise and celebration and thanksgiving that God has answered. Despite the way this psalm started, despite the cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The truth is that God has not been distant or indifferent. God has not turned his face away. If we read verse 24 again, for he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Deliverance and rescue come to the one who has suffered. So in the second half of this psalm, then we can see not prophecy of Jesus suffering on the cross, but of the fulfillment of what the cross means. The isolation and mocking have been dealt with, the suffering has ended, and there is a looking forward to the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry. Verse 26 is reminiscent of the Beatitudes, the poor will eat and be satisfied. And verses 27 and 28, next layer of meaning if we're walking up a hill, looks to the end of time where we will read that all the peoples of all the nations will turn and bow the knee pointing us to Paul's letter in Philippians. If we read the psalm, all the ends of the earth will turn and turn to the, will remember and turn to the Lord. 
and all the families of the nations will bow before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And in Philippians 2, we read, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We have sung, I believe, in the name of Jesus. It is only in the name of Jesus that we find salvation. And we see here in this psalm that it points towards those letters and uh, other parts of the New Testament. We can see the similarities that we can look forward to a time when all nations and even Gentiles will turn to God. The final verses of this psalm continue in this vein, speaking of God's future rescue of the one who suffers. His suffering has a worldwide and everlasting impact. The afflicted one has gone from isolation, desperation, with seemingly nothing and nobody to help. He was on the brink of a violent death but has moved forward to look forward to rescue, to no rescue and look forward to glories to come. This psalm is minutely fulfilled in Jesus, in the violent death and the events surrounding it, to the promise of glory and worship at the end times. We can keep climbing these peaks and keep, keep understanding the layers that are in there. And another peak is what does it mean for us today? By way of illustration, in 1985, Joe Simpson and Simon Yates were both, well, both experienced mountaineers, and they successfully ascended the previously unclimbed west face of Suola Grande in Peru, any help there? Close enough, thank you. After leaving the summit, their descent by way of the North Ridge proves unexpectedly difficult in, at times, stormy weather. As they made their way down in treacherous conditions, whilst climbing down an ice cliff, Simpson falls and breaks his leg. They continue their descent with Simpson roped and being lowered by Yates, inch by inch. When Yates accidentally lowers Simpson over the edge of a cliff, leaving him suspended in midair. Yates is unable to pull him up and realizes that he is gradually going down into the cliff himself gradually losing traction on the snow. And after over an hour of this, of shouting and not being able to hear over the storm whether there's a response or not, he takes the decision to cut the rope. The following day, Yates descends into the crevasse but is still unable to see or hear any evidence of what has happened to Simpson and concludes that he must have perished 
and continues on to base camp. Except he didn't die. Simpson is still alive. Somehow he has survived the fall and is trapped in a deep glacial crevasse with a broken leg. It must have been a terrifying and excruciatingly painful ordeal, but he goes deeper into the crevasse and eventually finds a way out, dragging his broken leg. We can't begin to imagine the terrors that those days of utter isolation brought, and it is little wonder that the film and the book that he released of that experience is called Touching the Void. You may have seen it. He may not have been surrounded by devouring lions or mocking enemies, but he believed there was no hope for survival. He said, I didn't crawl out because I thought I'd survive. I wanted to be with somebody when I died. He thought he was alone, but he wasn't. He had rejected his faith that he was brought in, but did say of that time that he hoped his mother was praying for him. And though he doesn't attribute it to God, he said that somehow he heard a voice telling him what he needed to do. We may not face the horrors of marauding lions or the extreme situation that Joe Simpson was in, but this psalm should shape us today when we do face situations where we feel like screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Save me from this. It should shape us because this psalm teaches us that we have a savior who understands suffering. This psalm, in the way that it points to the events of Good Friday, turn on its head any idea that God is indifferent to suffering. <coughs> Excuse me. It promises that God did not does not turn away or fail to hear the cries of those in deep anguish. He heard the cries of his people who were enslaved in Egypt. He hears the cries of the oppressed and bombarded today. He hears the cries of those who are being persecuted. And he loves us to hear our cries, whether they be big things or small things that cause us anguish. He hears our cries. This psalm should shape us because we know that Christ's suffering was no accident. As I said, this is prophecy. It was written centuries before. Jesus knew he was to fulfill this prophecy, but he went through the agonies of the cross anyway. His suffering was not a sign of a weak, incapable God, but of the one who was in control. If you know something is going to happen and you have the power to change it, it means that you are in control. But he fulfilled the agonies of the cross anyway. He was in control of events 
events were not, were not controlling him. And it shapes us because it points to future glory. Christ's suffering is of eternal consequence because it achieves for us the means of salvation and forgiveness. His cross is the bridge that overcomes the chasm between humanity and God. It is him paying the price for our redemption. There is purpose in his suffering and there is purpose in ours. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We have a God who understands suffering. He is not a distant observer, but the one who experienced suffering. Jesus' suffering was no accident, no sign of weakness. But it points to glory. It points to glory and an eternity with him through him and because of him. This isn't a sermon where I can leave you with a, a, you know, a five-point action plan to make us all better Christians. There's no tick list today because the in truth, the only thing we can do when we reflect on what this psalm teaches us is worship. And whether we've been worshipping for decades or whether we've never really experienced deep within us worshipping God. That is our response today. If you want to talk to me at a time, if you've got questions and want to talk about what it means to truly worship, to truly give ourselves to, to Jesus, then do come and see me and we'll arrange a convenient time. But let us worship in our final song that takes us back to those events of Good Friday and says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And on Good Friday, we will have a service of reflection here. And if you've never been, could I urge you to think about coming? Because the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday are so fundamental to our Christian faith that spending time in reflection is part of our growth that I spoke about earlier. So before we sing, let us pray. Lord Jesus, you suffered in our place. You suffered such a deep physical terror. And yet you did that willingly you did that being in control. Lord, we are humbled. We know that anything we can bring as an offering is so small. But Lord, we offer you ourselves. We thank you that the chasm has been bridged through the cross.
that through your death and resurrection, through the shedding of your blood, we can know what it means to be forgiven, to be sanctified. We can know what it means to look forward with a sure and certain hope of the certainty of the glories of heaven. Lord, as we reflect on this psalm, we pray that we would draw closer to you. For your glory. Amen.